Hello and welcome to episode 207 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X, Instagram and or Facebook. Also follow me on Blue Sky if you're on there as well. In this episode, we hear from Sinem Adar. She is an associate at the Center for Applied Turkey Studies at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs and a very astute observer of Turkey's foreign policy, what motivates it, and how it is changing under President Erdogan. Our conversation builds off two articles in particular that she's written on Ankara's response to the Israel-Gaza war. Our conversation builds off two articles in particular that Sinem has written on Ankara's response to the Israel-Gaza war. One of those articles for War on the Rocks argues that the crisis shows the limits of Turkey's influence and how it has effectively been sidelined in the region, exemplifying the big discrepancy in Turkey's foreign and regional policy between grand ambitions and limited capacity. The other piece was co-written with Hamid Reza Azizi for the Middle East Institute think tank and it looks at how Turkey and Iran, what they call an axis of revisionism, converge and diverge on the question of Israel-Gaza as well as many other issues. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. Christmas is indeed coming, so if you're looking to treat yourself or if you're looking to treat that special someone to a simply amazing present, why not consider doing a good deed by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member? This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together, and I do need listeners' support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent, with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. 
But now onto our conversation with Sinem Adar. Just a note, first up, we had this conversation before the recent hostage swaps and the pause in fighting. So by the time this episode is published, fighting may very well have restarted. But I'm sure this conversation will remain fresh because in it we discuss some broader, longer term themes that have emerged since October 7th. As I mentioned earlier, in her War on the Rocks piece, Sinem argues that Turkey has been effectively sidelined as an influential player amid the latest Israel-Gaza war. Despite many years of Erdogan's government making a lot of Turkey's rising power and influence, she suggests that Ankara is arguably less influential in the region than it was just over a decade ago for a number of complicated reasons. So I started by asking Sinem Adar to outline that case for us. I'll first start kind of laying out why I wrote the piece. And that was mainly because of what was perceived as a kind of a shift in Erdogan's rhetoric, or to put it differently, Turkey's positioning. Following the statements coming from Ankara, including from President Erdogan, but also from other senior leaders of the AKP, that made me think that there are a couple of reasons that kind of lead to the shift in the course of actually a quite a short time, a couple of days after October 7, Hamas's brutal attack on Israeli citizens happened. And there, I think a couple of factors are at play. First and foremost, Israel-Palestine conflict has been one of the most important elements of the AKP's Middle East policy in the last two decades. And within that, the support that the AKP has been giving to Hamas. So that's kind of like the one reason, I think, why Erdogan, in the course of a couple of days after October 7, started to sharpen his rhetoric against Israel. But then there are a couple of other factors as well, such as Turkey's criticism of the international order, Turkey's opposition against the US-led world order. And last but not least, I think a very strong anxiety, not only among the AKP leadership, but also across the political spectrum in Turkey that the war in and on Gaza might actually lead to a return of the U.S. back to the region, which is seen as an hindrance to the AKP's regional policy, be it in Syria or be it in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, coming to your question about why I think that what was happening since October 7 shows that Ankara actually has quite little influence in this particular conflict is as follows. I think first and foremost, the events and Ankara's positioning has shown that it has really little influence not only on Israel, but also on Hamas. And this has, I think, a couple of reasons. First and foremost, of course, Turkey has been, although Ankara has taken the step towards a rapprochement with Israel in the last one and a half, two years, I think the harsh criticism of Erdogan in a way blocked or disrupted that rapprochement effort. So already relations were not repaired and the harsh criticism came within that context. In other words, Ankara already had not a very strong influence on Israel, but the harsh criticism, I think, made it worse. Now, when it comes to Hamas, as I said earlier, Turkey has been a um, supporter of Hamas, most rhetorically, I would say, but also, of course, it has provided um, safe haven to the senior leaders, especially the political wing of Hamas. There is a political bureau in Istanbul, etc., etc., in the second decade of the 2000s. But even that relationship in the context of, again, Turkey's 
these rapprochement efforts with different countries in the Middle East, including Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and lately Israel was taken a hit. And even though rhetorically Turkey is a supporter of Hamas, I think in terms of like material impact, the influence on Hamas was also minimum. In addition to, I think, the very little influence that Ankara seems to have both Israel and Hamas, the warring parties, I think it also lacks instruments that it might use as leverage when it comes to the conflict in Gaza. And there, my thinking is as follows. I think the Black Sea situation is a good, provides a good comparison. In the Black Sea, Turkey was able to play quite a long time a so-called balancing act between Russia and the West, mainly because of the leverage that it has due to its NATO membership. So it can, in a way, play one actor against the other as well as the Monroe Convention that gives Turkey quite strong power over who can pass through the straits. Now, in the case of the conflict in Gaza, none of these instruments exist. So uh, this is kind of like the second pillar why I think not only that Turkey doesn't have influence on the warring actors, but also it lacks the necessary instruments that could provide Ankara with leverage over the warring actors. So we're talking here, and you mentioned that Turkey basically limit has limited tools to deal with this crisis in an effective way. And therefore, the, the major tool that it's reverted to is, as you say, this very harsh language that we're seeing again, you know, once again, probably tougher language than any other regional leader. And if we just dig down on that language, it seems to be both a reflection of, you know, genuine feeling, but it's also, as always, part of this broader conscious bid to gain favor as a leader of the Muslim world, you know, distinct from other regional leaders who are more mealy-mouthed. But I don't know about you, perhaps more than before, I'm sensing a bit of skepticism about that, even among some of Erdogan's international fans, basically saying nice words and all, very good, but it's not enough. There aren't enough instruments here that are being used. So is that a useful way to look at this? You know, should we think of this crisis as showing the limits of harsh language, harsh condemnations? Absolutely. You are absolutely right. I think this aspiration of Turkey to position itself and President Erdogan is the leader of the Sunni Muslim world is, of course, one of the main drivers of Turkey's positioning when it comes to the long-standing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think it also has been playing a role in Turkey's current positioning since October 7. Yet you are absolutely right. I think Turkey's influence on, as I mentioned earlier, both on state and non-state actors in the region has been significantly less. But at the same time, I think even among ordinary citizens in the MENA region, that influence has been significantly declined. I mean, we see this, right, in a couple of areas, actually. For instance, in a couple of months ago, there was a violent attack against a Kuwaiti tourist in the Black Sea region of Turkey. And that triggered a kind of a controversial debate within Turkey in terms of, again, this aspiration of Turkey to position itself as the leader of the Muslim world, as the leader in the Middle East, as a regional hegemon in the Middle East, etc., etc. So on the one hand, at the societal level, the growing xenophobia within Turkey against mainly 
first and foremost against Syrian refugees, but in general, Arab citizens who came to Turkey as tourists, as medical tourists, as students, as uh, business people, etc. That has been significantly more salient in the last one and a half, two years. And I think that does some harm to Turkey's aspirations to elevate itself to the status of regional hegemon and to position itself as the leader of the Muslim world. But at the same time, I think even among, for instance, the Sunni Islamists that Turkey has been supporting since the Arab uprisings very systematically, even among the Sunni Islamists, I think the influence has been weaker and weaker. That has a lot to do with the eroding trust. And here, I think Turkey's rapprochement efforts with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, actors, which all see political Islam in the region as a threat to their own survival, I think Turkey's efforts to repair its relations with these actors led to, to a certain extent, the loss of its credibility, even among the Arab Islamists. So for very different reasons, Turkey's influence on state actors, non-state actors at the elite level, as well as among ordinary citizens has been increasingly declining in the last, since 2020, I would say. Now, we're talking just a few days after Erdogan's visit to Germany, where he met Chancellor Olaf Scholz and the German president. You're there in Berlin, so I guess you were following this visit relatively closely. And during that visit, he used, again, very tough language against Israel, slamming the West's stance, slamming Germany's stance in a press conference alongside Scholz. And through that, he gained very positive headlines, obviously, at home and also provided highly memeable content almost generating a kind of one minute part two moment over 10 years on. But ultimately, again, there was there was nothing new there, no new initiatives, nothing concrete, either economically or diplomatically uh, against Israel. And it seemed to em- exemplify this strategy for him that we're talking about. It basically comes down to harsh words, grandstanding, but it feels a little bit hollow. Just wondered how you reflected on that visit that he made towards the end of last week. You know, on the one hand, I think it fits very well into the general positioning of Turkey when it comes to its relations with its Western allies. We talked about earlier Turkey's aspirations to position President Erdogan and Ankara as the leader of the Muslim world. But I think since 2016, that is actually a part of an even bigger aspiration to position Turkey as the defender of the globally disenfranchised. And Turkey has been using, in my opinion, four talking points towards this end. One is what we talked earlier, the Israel-Palestine conflict. The other is a very strong critique of colonial past of the West. And there, usually in relations with France, you see that rhetoric a lot, especially in terms of Turkey's competition with France in Africa. And then comes Turkey's critique of the international system. The two mottos, I think, are very prominent, and they were even mentioned in the speech that the new foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, delivered at a meeting of the ambassadors, if I remember correctly, somewhere in the summer, that one is the world is bigger than five, referring to the very structure of the United Nations Security Council. And the other one is that we are demanding a fairer and more just world, basically asking for to put it very crudely, a bigger slice from the pie for the global south. So every country needs to be treated on equal footing. 
So the critique of the international system is the third point. And the fourth is combating Islamophobia. This is, again, in line with Turkey's aspiration to position itself as the leader of the Muslim world. I think the very harsh rhetoric that President Erdogan, and I'm not even sure whether it was that harsh, to be honest, like it was obviously very critical of Germany's own positioning in the current conflict in Gaza. But he was also, I think, he refrained from, for instance, calling Israel a terror state, which he did in the last couple of weeks, he also refrained from repeating his and Ankara's position on Hamas, that Turkey doesn't accept Hamas as a terrorist organization, as its Western allies do, but Turkey considers Hamas as a as part of the Palestinian liberation movement, etc. But again, like these are all in line with these talking points in foreign policy, but there is not much more than the rhetoric. And there, I guess, maybe one of the assumptions is that talk is cheap. So it doesn't really have a lot of costs to Turkey, although I'm not really very sure about it, especially in terms of Turkey's relations with the European Union and the US. But at the same time, even though Turkey's influence among ordinary citizens within the MENA region, as well as its diasporas, particularly in Europe, have been declining, I think these talking points still do have some appeal. So the calculation could be that, okay, by taking a kind of a seemingly harsh rhetorical position in Germany, there can be some short-term benefits by talking towards these grievances, actual real grievances that exist, not only, as I said, among the Arab diasporas in Europe, but also ordinary citizens in the Mende region. But beyond that, going back to the Israel-Palestine conflict, I think Turkey has, hasn't taken many concrete steps beyond that rhetorical outcry. I mean, yes, it has withdrawn its ambassador from Israel, but even when you look at the readout, for instance, of the decision, it reads quite weak in the sense that we are calling back our ambassador to have a consultation about what is happening in Gaza. And I mean, this has not been discussed a lot in the last couple of weeks, but I find it really astounding that, for instance, the statement that came out of the joint summit of the Arab League and the Organization for the Islamic Cooperation, one of the articles that took place in this statement is that the Arab and the Muslim countries recognize the PLO as the legitimate actor in Israel-Palestine conflict, which in a way is not completely incompatible with Turkey's positioning vis-a-vis Hamas, but still, for Turkey, given its own positioning, it's a little bit of a taking a step back. And what is perhaps even, to put it very crudely again, more embarrassing, given the very harsh criticism, is the words of President Erdogan at this very summit, where he was talking about Turkey being willing to reconstruct Gaza once the war is over, which to me, in a way, highlights where the Turkish priorities are on actual and material terms. Yeah, and that's really good to bring up that regional angle, particularly potential disagreements over Hamas. It's not really been discussed as much as I thought it might be at the start of this crisis, but obviously Turkey has a very different position on Hamas to many of the regional players. And obviously, Turkey's been pursuing this rapprochement process with a number of those players, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. 
But obviously all those countries have quite a different view of Hamas. So when Erdogan comes out and says, you know, Hamas are freedom fighters, they're not terrorists, etc., etc., that probably raised some eyebrows, not just in the West, but in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh. So how do you think that one's going to play out as this crisis continues? Because obviously over 10 years ago, Turkey really felt that it could inspire popular revolts against the regional order, against these established regimes, basically bringing out a new Turkey-led Islamist dispensation. But obviously that didn't come about. And as we say, Erdogan has ended up stepping back and launching this normalization process with various regional players. So could we see a scenario going forward that potential fissures start to re-emerge as this crisis drags on? And could that ultimately drag the regional equation back to something resembling the, the Arab Spring era with revisionist forces like Turkey basically at odds with established regimes? Or is it still too early to, to make those kind of bold predictions? I think it's still early. It depends on how long the war in and on Gaza will continue and how whether major players, including Iran, will position themselves if the war is prolonged. But what we can see at the moment is that you are absolutely right. I think Turkey has, when you look at the responses coming from Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, for instance, there you see the criticism has three layers. There is the criticism of Israel. There is the criticism of Hamas. And there is also the criticism of the, the positions that are taken by the US and the EU. So that is a significantly different positioning than Turkey's. But again, what I said earlier about the statement that came out of the joint meeting of the Arab League and the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, in a way, it's, it demonstrates again the weaker position of Turkey when it comes to the regional calculus. Its competition with the regional actors, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, because that competition is still ongoing on both sides. I think both of the parties do see each other as competitors. And that's also why, because of that dynamic or because of the fact that competition is the main driver of the relationship, that I think also makes the relationship less prone to easily building trust. Therefore, I think the actors would be quite careful in terms of the ways in which they see one another. But Turkey is in a weaker position mainly because of its economic situation. And there, given that despite the attempts to take upon a so-called rational path in its economic policy by increasing the interest rates, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, by appointing a completely new team, the economic management, we still do not see significant financial flows coming from the West, which makes countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates very important providers to Turkey. So I think it seems to me that actually Turkey has more to lose in that relationship, therefore will not really risk jeopardizing that relationship, also taking into account the so many agreements that were signed with, with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which one could consider strategic because there have been agreements signed in the concerning the defense industry. There have been agreements signed concerning critical infrastructure. So the relationship with, with the two Gulf countries, despite the ongoing competition towards regional influence, given that Turkey is a weaker position, I do not necessarily see, at least in the short term, that what has been happening since October 7 would lead to um, a moment similar to the Arab uprisings. 
You've also written about Turkey's ties with Iran since this crisis erupted. It's obviously a very complicated question, a complicated relationship. And Turkey is obviously not part of Iran's axis of resistance in the region, but they do share a perspective on some key questions. And you describe that as a kind of axis of revisionism. Basically, both Ankara and Tehran share an interest in removing the US from the region, among other things. So could you just talk a bit about this, you know, that relationship, what do Turkey and Iran agree on and where do the tensions lie? Mm-hmm. Access of revisionism in quotation marks, which I think is important. Let me start with this. We decided to write the piece because we thought that, especially in light of the meetings, the Iranian foreign minister, if I'm not mistaken, was in Turkey. And then there were some consultations and clearly phone conversations among Qatar, Turkey and Iran. Basically, three actors in the region, which in one way or another support Hamas. Obviously, Iran's relations with Hamas are much deeper and stronger compared to Turkey's relations with Hamas. But that's one of the kind of the similarity or commonality between the two actors. But even more importantly, we thought that the responses of Ankara and Tehran against the position taken by the US, i.e. the unequivocal and unconditional support given by Biden administration to Israel, could be one point that might bring Turkey and Iran closer to one another, despite all their differences and tensions in different theaters, such as the Caucasus, Syria, and Iraq. Both actors, both Iran and Turkey, are against a US-led world order. They are also very critical of the ways in which the current international system functions. So for all these reasons, we thought the events since October 7 might help Turkey and Iran close the ranks. But of course, even though both Iran and Turkey could be defined as revisionist actors, I think that there are also significant hindrances if there is some rapprochement for that rapprochement to take a more formal and institutionalized form. First and foremost, their revisionism is of a very different nature. I mean, Turkey is a revisionist actor within the system. Turkey is a NATO member. Turkey is still a candidate country to the EU, even though the accession negotiations are de facto frozen and are not going anywhere. And Turkey will not become an EU member state in the short term, let alone in the midterm. And Turkey, in my opinion, also likes to be a part of the Western institutional architecture, at the very least because of the benefits that being a member of the Western institutional architecture, particularly the Western security architecture, the NATO, because of the leverage that it provides with Turkey, which I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation. Therefore, Turkey's place within the Western system is actually ultimately a likely hindrance to a more substantive alliance between Turkey and Iran. Secondly, even though at the current moment their joint opposition against the US and against the return of the US to the region might bring the two actors closer, the minute that threat is off the table, 
this is related to the question of how long the war on Gaza will continue. I think the two actors will likely to go back to the points of divergence, points of conflict, points of competition between the two. And this is the most visible in Iraq and Syria. And of course, as a third factor, I think the very positioning of Russia and China, the division's actors, would also be important here. And so far, neither Russia nor China seem to be very willing, appear to be very willing to support a formalization, institutionalization of such an axis of revisionism. So even though there is the possibility for a closer rapprochement between Turkey and Iran, and I'm summing up here, I think there are factors that would hinder it in the mid to long term. And that's why axis of revisionism in quotation marks. As you say there, that shared interest at this stage is motivated in large part by this alarm or at least skepticism of the US return to the region. The prospect of those US airline carriers arriving in the region has kind of haunted Turkish policymakers, commentators since the start of the crisis. Obviously, there is that long running skepticism of the US's role. And based on that, you know, I've seen the eyes of a few pro Erdogan commentators starting now to turn to next year's US presidential election and starting to hope really for Trump's nomination and indeed his defeat of Biden in that election in 12 months time. I think behind that, there's this belief really that Trump exposes US hypocrisy more openly, he doesn't dress it up in hollow, insincere, quote unquote, principles. And indeed, he also represents, in many ways, an American retreat from the world, at least a retreat from its traditional role as the kind of guardian of the the liberal order, in quotation marks. And obviously, that is in line with what we're saying here, you know, Turkey's welcoming of a, a multipolar global system. Uh, so that, I think, is, is kind of what lies behind the, the welcoming of Trump's return, essentially. And that probably is going to become clearer over the next few months. So could you just conclude by reflecting on that Turkey-US relations? You know, how are Turkish officials and Erdogan starting to think now about that crucial US election next year? No, you are absolutely right, because I think one of the main assumptions that drive Turkish foreign policy in the last decade is that a multipolar world is emerging, and that emerging multipolar world provides Turkey with a lot of opportunities to conduct what it calls an independent, autonomous foreign policy. And here, I think the independent, the very word independent, is understood as independence from the West, mainly the US. And this position, obviously, that drives the foreign policy conduct of the AKP leadership. But I I think it is also shared by other actors across the political spectrum in Turkey. So that's kind of like a uniting, if you will, assumption about the global order. So that's one element of it. The second element of it, I think Turkey is actually interesting. I already mentioned that Turkey thinks that it's this emerging multipolar world provides Turkey with opportunities to strike an independent foreign policy. But interestingly, I think Turkey is also actually a symptom if the assumption is true, 
Turkey is also a symptom of that emerging multipolar world. To a certain extent, in the first 10 years of the 2000s, because of its increasing influence, mainly in the MENA region, but in the second decade of the 2000s, because of its increasing disruptive motivation. Let's put it that way. That's it's increasing the more disruptive actor. And kind of going back to the previous question about what brings Turkey and Iran together, I think both of the actors share this assumption. Iran also thinks that it is an emerging multipolar world. And their foreign policy actions are driven by the motivation to sideline Western actors in their neighborhoods. We see this in Syria, for instance, in the formation of the Astana process among Iran, Russia and Turkey as an alternative to the Geneva process. We see this now in the Southern Caucasus, a proposal that was made back in 2020 by Turkey to create a similar structure, similar to the Astana, to solve all the problems in the Southern Caucasus. And late October, Iran hosted Russian and Turkish foreign ministers in a way putting, taking the first step towards putting into implementation such a multilateral mechanism. So against this back Backdrop. First, an emerging multipolar world provides Turkey and other revisionist actors with opportunities to strike an independent foreign policy. And second, it also allows these actors in relation to sideline Western actors in their neighborhoods. I think against this backdrop, I don't think it's surprising that commentators in Turkey close to the government, but not even perhaps close to the government, would welcome victory by Trump or a Trump-like figure in the coming US elections. That was Sinem Adar. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 207. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. And of course, Christmas is coming. So what better way to treat yourself or indeed that special someone in your life than getting a Turkey Book Talk membership on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your social media page. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap are doing terrific work. They are, among other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.